Hi, everybody. Welcome to Salon Number Two in our Fort Worth Opera Salon. This is Joe Illick here. I am invisible because of technical failings on my part. So I'm going to be here on the phone with three wonderful guests who will be visible. And I'd like to introduce them all to you. Today's theme is those creatives who are both composers and librettists. It's truly amazing. And the three guests we have with us today are Rachel J. Peters, Nicole Brooks, and Hector Armienta. Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you here. Thanks for asking us, Joe. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that seems like magic to the public at large is how a work gets created. And uh, what I'd really love is for each of you to just talk about your own process, um, what it is you see, feel, hear, or think that, that causes the seed to be planted in the first place. And then whether you're using a specific work of yours or speaking generally, how that seed uh, becomes a full-blown piece, which then uh, months or years later, the public actually gets to see. Uh, Nicole, would you talk to us? You have this incredible, Nicole, Nicole is a, a filmmaker, a director, a producer, a composer, a writer, and um, uh, you know all this is happening in one person. So uh, just talk to us about how that process unfolds. Oh boy. Well, for me, I'm quite irreverent. So um, there, <laughs> there's not really a, it goes like this, A, B, C, D. Um, I, you were referencing my work, Obia Opera, which is quite unique because it's an acapella opera and it's with a cast of 20 women. So for me, I guess the beginnings was, uh, I knew that this particular piece was going to be of multiple genres, very eclectic. And so I sort of assigned either the mood of the piece or what have you to either the scene or to the character um, and what they were saying at the time. So as I was writing the book and the lyrics, and, and sometimes the music would come first. That's why I said I was very irreverent. It depended on what the scene called for. So there was some stuff that I crafted that I knew exactly what it was going to be. There was others that I had to muse upon and really have the character speak to me. Um, and so Nicole, forgive me for interrupting. Nobody, <laughs> nobody listening knows about this yet. T tell about what the story is and what the very first thing is that made you think about the story at all. <laughs> okay. Well, the piece, the latest piece that I created is entitled Obia Opera. And it is the story of the Salem witch trials, but told through the eyes of Tituba, the black slave who was first accused and the catalyst of the witch trials. And through mm -hmm. my research, I also found that there were other Caribbean women who lived there. So I thought it was quite fascinating to take this really amazing historical um, event in the Americas and put that vantage point and be like, okay, how do I tell this story musically, um, opera style? So my work is not conventional. European classical opera. This particular piece really embodies all manner of black music. So from Caribbean folk, which is what I really start, I guess that would be the root because I knew I was looking at a period piece, but I wasn't going to put it in the, the 17th century per se and just stick to that. I was like, oh, let's look at some of the indigenous African 
and Caribbean folk music and how do I choralize that musical setting. But then I didn't want to be reverent to the time at all. So I added R&B, Calypso, reggae, <laughs> all these sorts of things. And it, it was either dictated through the scene or through the characters. Because for example, with the Puritan girls, uh, they felt like Cyndi Lauper to me. So it was more of a pop feel there. But again, everything was extremely choralized. And I, because it was um, an acapella piece, I also knew that the arrangement had to be choral as well as, well as what I define now as a voistra because there were no instruments. So people were like, oh my gosh, everyone's singing. And I'm like, yes, but there are allocated parts that the, the chorus, the Greek chorus, if you would have it, or those acted as the orchestra and maintained the musical rhythm and the sound bed of the entire piece. It's so exciting to hear you talk about this. Um, I'm one of the few people who've heard this piece and it's absolutely stunning. So when you uh, conceive it, were you thinking words first or music first? There were certain sections that the words led and there were certain sections that the music led. So for example, one of the sections of the piece that people find most memorable are when the Caribbean women go into the forest at night uh, to sort of preserve who they are and talk about who they, it's called the I am suite. This is where the arias take place. And the words came first to me in that section, but I knew that each aria would be broken up with a Caribbean folk spiritual song that existed in, in the tradition that they represented. So one of the women, for example, was from Haiti. One, one of the women was from Trinidad. So I studied some of the folk music that came from that country. And I knew that one song would influence the rest of the aria that came from the country. So we understood who they were and how they were trying to preserve their culture and who they were through song and dance at night away from the slave master's eyes. Yeah, amazing. So I'm gonna to turn to you, Hector. You um, have written Bless Me Ultima, which I got to see, and Zorro, which I hope to get to see because we were about to produce it when COVID struck, and uh, La Llorona. Um, talk about any one of those pieces and what the process was and if it's possible what the order of creative impulses that came to you was or if it was all simultaneous yeah well um, bless me ultima is, was is based on a novel a novel by a by a mexican-american rodolfo naya uh, and then uh, uh zorro is based is a is a folk legend but there are there's already sort of a storyline uh, connected to to the legend. Um, my story is a little is a little bit different. It draws more in California histories, what happened in Spain. There's some politics involved. Um, uh, in general, um, I, I usually start with the libretto first, um, and as I develop the libretto, um, then I sort of then identify really. Uh, I've really identified to some extent uh, not just the characters, but elements. So, for example, in Bless Me Ultima, um, there is these sort of magic, not magical, but um, natural, supernatural forces, which are the river and the mountain, 
So I'm, I, you know, I'm creating some light motifs. And so, so with the music, for example, I, you know, I'm very old school, so I still handwrite my music and I'll take some long um, sort of score paper and I will create on that single score paper, um, I'll create the light motif and then variations of it, as well as sort of sketch out how these different uh, light motifs um, will connect to each other, you know, both harmonically and all of that. But I generally work with the libretto, I do the libretto first. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, my thinking, and this is not always the case, um, is that, you know, there's some really, there's some great music, you know, and some operas, and we remember some of the arias, but if you don't have a really good libretto, then um, you, you have a collection of arias or musical moments, but you don't have a, you know, for theater, you don't have a compelling story. Um, so that's just in terms of my, my right, I'm, I'm, you know, that's sort of my process. It's, it's less, it's less organic, <laughs> more structured, so. Well, I, I think that we've all found that um, a, a great libretto makes all the difference in the world. And um, I know that, you know, as a composer, I tried to be like you all, uh, a composer librettist and found that I could only make a bad libretto and that that definitely um, prevented anything exciting from happening on stage. So we know it's crucial and we know that that uh, other great opera composers said with with a really wonderful libretto, you can do just about anything. So, uh, Rachel, talk to us. You you um, have have a very interesting imaginary world that, um, you know, changes with all of your pieces, but often it's not based on um, the stuff of of day to day life, which I just find so wonderful and fascinating. Um, and I'd love to know if you are able to put it into words where all that comes from and how you handle it once it surfaces. Well, I would say that it changes with each project. I mean, yes, the thing that is fairly consistent is that I do have characters who might not be human, but who are in their animalness or their inanimate object-ness, their otherness are trying to figure out the rules of being human. Um, I've gotten away from that a little bit recently just because of the nature of some of the projects that I've taken on. I should um, clarify that I do work alone a lot, but I also frequently work with collaborators uh, wearing either the librettist hat with a composer or wearing the composer hat with another librettist. Um, so it, I, I've actually been doing things that are more, I wouldn't say strictly realistic, but that are grounded in history and uh, the stories of actual human beings more so than, than I have in the past. Um, yeah. Has that, that been a conscious choice? It's all helpful. Is that a conscious choice or has that been uh, as the consequence of your taking on certain um, commissions to write a libretto for somebody who had specific requests? I think it's very much the latter. Um, so if an opportunity to collaborate with another writer or with a company is presented to me, um, I don't automatically go looking for animals and baguettes um, per se. <laughs> so especially if, uh, for example, No Ladies in the Ladies book, which I did with Lisa de Spain for Utah Opera a couple of years ago, uh, there's a very specific directive to write something about the transcontinental railroad. And so my question, aside from you know, frogs and dogs and bears and chickens and things is, 
uh, where are the women? And so I was looking for the women who had anything to do with the Transcontinental Railroad. And it was my research that led me to the particular characters who ended up showing up in that story. Um, and sometimes it's uh, it's image-based. So right now, uh, I can't talk about this a whole lot, but very soon there will be coming out um, an adaptation of uh, Dorothy Parker's Men I'm Not Married To, for which I've written oh my God. I know, I'm so excited. Um, but so for that, it's not inherently necessarily a theatrical story. And I created a theatrical device and the initial image came from this uh, lecture that I saw when I was doing some research. And they talked about how in the 1920s, we think of flappers as not wearing a lot of undergarments, but in fact, they did wear up to 11 layers of undergarments well into the 1920s. But when they went to parties, they would take all of these layers off so they could go party and put them in a pile in the bathroom. And so that became the central image for me. And I thought, oh my gosh, like the best way to tell this story is in the ladies' room where everyone has thrown their corsets over the bathroom stall door into a pile. And then they talk about the men they're not married to. Um, so I would say that quite often I, I do what I call circling the drain. I find a central image or a phrase that just doesn't leave me alone. And then everything sort of comes from there. And I do a mix of original libretti and adaptations. And so it really depends on the project. I mean, as you know, with companionship, which Fort Worth Opera did a great job with in 2019, um, it was a very, very strong short story that was so perfectly crafted and just spoke to me on such a deep personal level that I almost felt like there was no work to be done. You know, there was so much that was all right there. I, I know that um, if you read a great story, it can be a, a springboard like that. But I, I also know you brought so much of your own imagination to that. And Arthur was thrilled. But OK, so your your description of that process sort of begs my next question. And this is a question for all of you. Are there themes that you're eager to explore already and then you come across a story or something that already speaks to that theme or is it sometimes possible that the story takes you by surprise and you didn't realize that it was something that um really meant something to you i'm going to swing back to you nicole hmm, i'm sort of musing on what both rachel and hector <laughs> just talked about because um had you been thinking about the Salem witch trials since you were a kid or um, did that present itself to you and then suddenly get a whole chain of imaginative oh, events going? You, you won't believe how it came to me, but um, I'm, I'm more open now I to share But how that came to be is I remember being on a film set and at the time I was exploring and learning more about African indigenous spiritual practices. So I had like a little altar in my hotel room when I was traveling with a film company on a show that I was on and a colleague had come in to speak to me about some stuff. And then when he saw the stuff on my desk, he called me a witch. And then there was this huge thing that happened on set. He met it in a nice way, right? He was just no, saying- No, oh, he, was, he was very horrified. He was very oh, scared. Okay. He ran out and it became rumored on the set that I was a practicing witch, but in a bad way. But it was so fascinating to me. And this is a true story. It was fascinating yeah. to me 
to be labeled as a witch and to see the reactions um, that came forth from the crew that I, I was with at the time, we were on the road taping um, a series um, at the time. And I took that and I said, I wanna look into it some more. So I know mine is very <laughs> interesting in that way. And well, what is very interesting. Yeah, and then what came, what started popping up. So I believe that Tituba was sort of calling me in a way because her name just started popping up all over the place. And I said, oh, this is interesting. Cause it's not to say that I was familiar with Arthur Miller's Crucible. I, I knew of it, but I didn't particularly study that in English for whatever reason or in theater, but I, you know, the name was there and I was like, oh, this is very interesting. But it, the reason why I entitled the work Obia Opera was because in the Puritan research that I found, they referenced the word Obia. And I knew that that word was in American or English. That is a bona fide Caribbean term, which loosely means witchcraft. So that told me that there was more than Tichiba in the town who was black and of Caribbean descent. And that's what made my digging go further. And I was thinking about what Hector said, and I completely agree with him in regards to structure. And I guess the, the and, and then I thought about what Rachel said in way of adaptation. So the structure was already there for me. I was dealing with real historical events and there was a chain of events that allowed me, I guess, to have a certain organic liberty because they were, you know, center poles and marks of history and of events that I had to follow that I knew, but I was reinterpreting those events through the eyes of the black slave, or rather, I don't like to say the word slave anymore, enslaved African. Uh, so um, it, it's quite interesting listening to my colleagues here and, and, and sort of fitting myself in going, oh, no, no, I hear what you're saying there, you know, and, and, and I love what Rachel said about looking at certain themes or, or even the situation of the women in the uh, change room or wherever, taking off their corsets and stuff. And I'm like, I, I agree with you on that. Um, there are certain scenes that I knew, and this is why I could go out of order to be like, I think I want to develop there. And that scene in the forest I knew was very central, the heartbeat of the piece, even though there was a beginning, middle and end. And where I was really focusing on had started there with the women and really wanting to, to show their lives because they were not seen in history. Because Tituba was written about, people know about Tituba, but she was only there for a few sentences and then she went away again. And so that became very important. So to loop back to your original question is, I'm fascinated. I will always write stories of women. That's what I do. And black uh -huh. and the stories that aren't being told, that's why I'm here. And there's a, an element that all three of you share in the works that we've been talking about. And that is that they all involve um, either the supernatural or something which is not uh, purely realistic. I wonder if, because opera can do what opera can do, that's a particularly appealing medium for you because um, you can you can do things on a stage with music and um, in, in an operatic setting that can take us as far as fantasy goes. Uh, is that a conscious choice for any of you? I don't know. 
that I always seek out those kinds of stories and theatrical experiences, but I will say that it's kind of my jam and my wheelhouse. Um, so I do frequently find myself landing there. Um, Fort Worth Opera also presented Steve, which is a short uh, operatic adaptation of a story or a play by Liz Bartucci, um, and it's about a dog, um, among other things. And uh, I had, when I had that commission uh, the year before, I had a ton of short plays that I could choose to adapt about all kinds of different things. And of course, the one that I chose was the one about the animal, because that's just kind of what my brain does. Um, so it's definitely like whether or not I mean to, it's something that comes up over and over again. Well, for you, and for, uh, forgive me for uh, like saying the way you think, because I really don't pretend to know the way you think. But you say crazy, Joe. Your, it's okay. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I mean, once you got your human papers, you know, no. The the <laughs> thing that um, <laughs> the thing that I see over and over is that whether it's a loaf of bread or chicken pox, they're always anthropomorphic, right? You're able to say mm -hmm. things about what it's like to be human through being something that's not human. Mm -hmm. which I find very wonderful. And um, opera certainly allows that. Maybe any medium could allow that, but, but opera seems to be made for, for fantasy of that kind. Well, it's and, also and a way, you, I'm sorry. No, I was just thinking that all, all three of you took subjects that uh, involve elements of, of supernatural and weave them seamlessly into um settings that seem like they're they're normal until they aren't well i you know i you know i think it's part of my culture you know my cultura it's you know we we sort of explore those things that exist that we know exist that live with us but we can't see them uh we feel their presence and um and you know with like la llorona la llorona is this you know the weeping woman this famous mexican folktale it's in the southwest and in South America, sort of all over, um, uh, you know, without going into, you know, my version of La Llorona, which, I, you know, I incorporate some Maya mythology was, you know, I'm fascinated about, uh, you know, the things that, that exist with us and, and to some extent uh, move us from one place to another, you know, the question of destiny or fate. Um, and I know when you asked about you know, when you work when you work on a piece, of there are other things that sort of, you know, surface. And I know when I was working on Bless Me Ultima, you know, I'm you know I'm I'm you know Chicano. I'm from California, and Latinos are very different in Chicano than they are in Texas or Tejanos. And and when when I went to New Mexico, I mean, you know, that's just a whole different space. And I remember um, Mr. Nye's family took me out to where he was born, and took me to this house where he grew up and the trees were blowing and there was an old cemetery from people born in the early 19th century. And, um, you know, there was a force there that, uh, you know, I, I sort of learned about. And that, you know, so it just seems like I'm always on this trajectory of, <laughs> you know, of being No, I totally get it. You know, uh, when you think about it, uh, Verdi operas, sometimes contain elements of the supernatural and almost all Wagner operas contain elements of the supernatural. And um, they, they didn't shy away from it in the words, but they certainly were able to underline it in the music. And, and you do that too. You use the music to say, Hey folks, we're in a totally different world. Do you want to come with me here? 
And I think yeah. in the context of sitting in a theater, people are willing to take that journey that maybe in a conversation uh, with a friend, they're not. Yeah. You know, if theater could, allows things. If I could add to that a little bit is, you know, when you're reading a book, um, you know, when you're, in theater is the visual element, right? Which is very literal. And when you're reading a novel or a book and you're, and you're reading these words in your mind, you're picturing things in places that, that you know you can't put into film really, and when in opera the power of is is when you have the you know, the text, but then the orchestra speaks, and there are no words, and then that orchestra takes you to another place visually and emotionally and spiritually, you know. So that's the magic. That's one of the powers of opera, you know, that story storytelling element that's in the music that has no words. Right, right, yeah, and yet everybody picks it up on some level. Yeah, yeah. And journeys to different worlds, listen to the same piece. So I'm jumping to a different question, but could each of you talk about what the first experience you had with a piece in a theater was that made you think this is for me? I saw You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, when I was four. And there was just such unbridled joy and it just made me so, so happy. And I thought, yep, this is it. This is for me. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> How about you, Nicole? Uh, well, mine is based more in musical theater. Um, and even though I've seen many a show on, live on stage, I remember when I saw Fela on Broadway, I felt that I could belong in either the musical theater world or in opera because I saw myself and African spirituality told in such a phenomenal way that I remember leaving the theater with my best friend and I said, I know what I have to do with my life now. It became, oh my gosh. It yeah. became very affirmative because I saw it on a commercial level in a big way and I felt seen for the first time. And it's not to say I haven't seen other work, but that one really told me that I could write the work that I- But that's read. what spoke to you, yeah. And how about you, Hector? Do you remember what it was? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I was, you know, I, I, you know, I started as a, as a R&B composer. And, you know, that's, that's what I was doing, you know, when I was in college. And, um, but I loved stories and I started sort of from there. Then I had a commission, you know, to write a, a youth opera. Um, and it really was, you know, more of a musical theater piece. Um, but I don't, I, and, uh, you know, it's just, uh, no, I don't remember one single piece that I saw that said, I want to be an opera composer. But, so. I guess being a theater composer generally, you have, all of you, have a belief that whatever you write is going to hit home with the people who are sitting out there in the audience. Do you feel like you're going to write your piece and let it go where it will? Or do you sometimes think, this is the message I want to get across? Well, I, I have an interesting story. <laughs> so I have a piece called um, River of Women, which is about the life of my grandmother. And it was in that piece, uh, that opera, um, that I actually incorporated La Llorona. So 
And so I have a trilogy called Ancient Waters and River of Women was the first one I wrote in the trilogy though it was part two. And then I wrote La Llorona part, is part one and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, but at the end, I was working this really wonderful director who we all know, but I won't mention his name today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, at the, but there's a scene when we see La Llorona for, herself, for the first time and she's cloaked in white and she takes the young daughter She's taking her into the waters. And the audience sort of knows what that is. And the director said to me, said to me, Hector, what, what happens? Does she die? Does she die? I, I said, well, I don't know. She says, well, you need to know. You're the writer. You need to know what you're going to tell the audience. I said, no. I said, let the audience decide for themselves whether she, she dies or she lives in the waters in another, in another space between the real world and the magical world. So that's, that's what I think. I'd always yeah, don't you think side. sometimes when pieces have ambiguous endings that it's even stronger for an audience because they don't necessarily have to come to the same conclusion as each other to get the most out of the piece? Yeah, I think so. I think it depends on what the piece is and what uh, the sort of logic of it is. Um, not all narratives are linear and not all operas are narrative at all. Um, I know that for me, especially if I'm adapting something that has a beginning, middle and end, I feel like the audience is making a contract with me to be pretty specific and clear about why they're there to see that story in particular. I don't think that all experiences are like that. And I think that uh, like Hector was just demonstrating, sometimes the some of the parts adds up to something that you really can't anticipate. And like, I can't control exactly what the audience is going to take away from it, but I can say, this is my thesis, receive it as you will. And Nicole, do you have an agenda with your audience or do you present what you have to present and, and feel that each person will take away what they need to take away? Well, that's an interesting question for me because I've learned throughout my entire creative career, whether it's film or live performance, whether it be musical theater or opera, uh, who I am is political as a black woman. So I, I inherit it whether I want to or not. And because I'm, I'm very specific in telling stories that have not been told, already I'm in a category. Um, not to say that I've placed myself in there, it just becomes a commission for me because I started, I came into this field wanting to see myself because I did not see myself before. And even, you know, to, to look at the canon of the greatest works, whether it be musical theater or opera, it doesn't behoove me or I've been told, you know, uh, it's usually written by white men, even the great black musicals like Porgy and Bess or whatever, they're written by white Jewish men. And wow, Nicole, you're writing work from your perspective as a black woman that lends a different, uh, you know, an authenticity that didn't exist before. So I'm, I'm reciting things that have been said to me afterwards. I can't say I went into it saying, this is what Nicole Brooks is going to do. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> it wasn't that at all. But now as I continue into my career, I understand the responsibility a lot more and know that my presence in itself is very purposeful. But I do know I'm here to tell women's stories. I do know I'm here to preserve history and to 
retell it in such a way. I'm, I do know I'm here to, uh, as you said, with whatever spirituality or supernatural or folklore, especially that opera allows, because you're absolutely correct about that. I am here to do that and I'm here to bring a different voice. And I'm okay with that now, for sure. Well, it's thank God that we now live in a time where not just white men have the opportunity to make their stories heard. And, um, you know, you're right. Most operas are written by white men and um, we're not choosing, you know, those, those operas have sort of self-selected out of the hundreds of thousands that have been written. There are a few hundred that keep being done. But Joe, can what I, will can happen? Say, yeah, can please. I say one quick thing? Um, you know, when I, was ref- when, when I was talking earlier, that's really specific to stories that I, that I wrote. But, you know, for Bless Me Ultima, I mean, if I created a different ending, Mr. Nye would be really upset. <laughs> and I, you know, so I had to work really closely with him to make sure I was telling his story. Um, you know, and, and Zero has sort of, there's this archetype, and there's, this, there's sort of a narrative, and I took some liberties, but I did have to, um, you know, s- stay true to that story. But just to add to what Nicole said is, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I, it, it was not my intention to, to tell the stories of my community. You know, I just wanted to be a composer. And I remember I was on another call, or Zoom call with Opera America a while back. And, and, there, was this, uh, and there was discussion about and one composer, which I, you know, really um, admire. Um, he just wants to create work and he's Latino. But, you know, I come from a generation where, you know, there, there really weren't any, you know, Latino American composers. I mean, there was, you know, Robert Rodriguez and then I'm sure there was another one I'm forgetting in myself, um, but you know, like maybe like Nicole, I don't know you, Nicole, except for this call. But you know, I, you know, I think some of us people, you know, artists of color, we almost have a responsibility to tell stories through our perspective, you know, not to have others tell our stories. And I think that's the other reason why you know I write the librettos. You know, I, you know, it's not what I trained to do. I trained to be a classical composer, but you know. That's, you know, there's reasons why I write my libretto. And one of them is to stay true to, to, to my community, so. I had a detour earlier in my career. I was studying composition and playwriting and performing at the same time. And um, I think a lot of where my parachute ultimately landed here has a lot to do with the fact that when I was learning operatic roles as a coloratura soprano, I was deeply unsatisfied with the material that was available to me to sing and what I was told I was supposed to be doing and the kinds of characters I was supposed to be playing. And so I said, wait a minute, I can write other things. So why don't I do that? And um, and now of course I've passed those on to people who are better at performing them than I am. But um, I just, I wanted to make the kind of theater I wanted to see, which I wasn't finding before, so. Well, that's a common thread that I hear you all saying, and I think that's so great that, um, you know, we we fill a void, we fill a creative void. If somebody's already said something exactly, there's no need to repeat it. Your last statement, when you're saying there's no need to repeat it, are you saying in way of creative works? In the way of if a story has been told to all of our satisfactions, then fine. You know, if, if we're all um, seeing, I don't know what, La Traviata or whatever, there are always ways to reinterpret it. 
But I think that as composer librettists, you've all said in different words that you saw stories that hadn't been told and ha or hadn't been told from particular perspectives. Uh, and so that spurred you on to create a work that, that finally did tell that story from a perspective that you saw it from or that you wanted to hear it told from. Gotcha. Completely understand now. Think, Thank you. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, Go ahead, other, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I think the other advantage is, you know, when you're the librettist, um, uh, when you're the composer and the librettist, um, you know, it's easier to ask the librettist to change the words to fit the music. So <laughs> that's, one, you know, that's, a, that's a great advantage, you know? Um, and I, I just, I find that that's, uh, for me, you know, because I, I said I write the, I usually write the, the libretto first and the text and all of that. Um, but as you write the music, then you can adapt the text much more easily to, to fit, you know, that lyrical, you know, the, the melody and the structure. Um, so that's one of the advantages. Well, <laughs> it's such a unique skill. I mean, we're, we're looking at uh, maybe a few dozen people throughout history who have both written their own words and uh, written their own music. Does it have any disadvantages? Is there a downside? Do you sometimes wish there was somebody doing one or the other for you? Well, I often have that because it depends on the project. So because I don't always work alone, I definitely appreciate the alchemy of passing off my libretto to a composer and having them bring something to it that I wouldn't have thought of. Or the other way around, if I'm working with a librettist and then I see something within whatever the structure is that they've given me and I can turn it into something that they weren't anticipating. I do like that. I like the sort of guardrail of that, which when I'm working alone, I don't get until I'm in rehearsal and I have a director or somebody looking at it and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Um, so that is helpful from time to time. Nicole, you um, are unique in that you create all the music and you teach it to the singers by rote. You don't write it down. Is that accurate? Correct. Um, what, I, well, I am very unconventional again. I don't read music. I don't do notation. Um, and so I had to come up with my, well, I worked with an MD who, when realizing that it was very difficult for me, because I did not have the language, the musical language to share what was in my head. Uh, he was like, I'm going to give you an eight track, a microphone, logic. And this is before GarageBand and all that became you know, the thing and said, uh, do you believe you can sing every note of everything that you hear of every piece that you hear? And I said, yes. So for Obia Opera, well, there was more than a hundred songs to do this. I sang everything. Um, so that everybody could hear every part. And then from there, it was taught orally because now there's a score that exists because I had someone basically uh, notated by ear um, but what we found because of the music and how it's delivered, the, the score is really the guide for the musical director, but teaching it oral tradition is the best way because of the nuances and the different styles. You could learn the music 
exactly the way it is written and still sing it wrong. Mm. So, you know, now it's sort of like for it to live, they probably, we probably have to continue having, sorry, the sun likes to follow me. I just was running away from it. Um, we're actually even in talks about that now where it's just like, well, maybe the recording always has to exist with it. But yes, people were very surprised that I sang absolutely everything. So I have a decent range, I'll wink. <laughs> From the high to low, I do. Um, and, and I have the ability, like I, I'm a singer as well. So um, you haven't had the privilege yet, Joe, because I didn't send you all my guide tracks, but the guide tracks um, are the Bible musically. And so it's interesting for me, I couldn't, no one could hear what I could hear. And I was like, I don't want to liken myself to Beethoven or Mozart, but I'm really hearing absolutely everything. And I couldn't have, at least for this piece, have anybody else interpret it or add. Um, and and it, was, it, it ended up being extremely unique in that way. Well, but that's so great. In our current era, that's a possibility because instead of something being committed to a, a written score, which is obviously subject to hundreds of different interpretations, if there are recorded tracks and that's the uh, taking off point for a production, then anybody anywhere in the world can have access to that, you know, by PDF or whatever. Yeah, I think as well, because of, especially with the Caribbean African music that was there and is very polyrhythmic, for example, or what have you, or different accents on, on different um, meters or, or different, you know, the ones being in the pocket, but ones on the offbeat or what have you. Um, it was interesting with the notator because she'd just be like, I don't understand. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> okay, you have to listen. Or even I remember I just did um, a master course with uh, um, um, writers across Canada that do musical theater and opera. And again, I had to be like, this is how I create music. So I'm gonna sing everything or I'll record now through GarageBand. And I remember th they spent 20 minutes on, you know, how, you know, polyrhythmic or how I'm not on said beat and how I bend notes. And, and I was like, this sort of is inherent to especially African um, musicality. Uh, but I, you know, they were just like, wow, this is so, or even how I reinterpreted a blues piece that I did. And they were like, oh my gosh, you like totally flipped the meter and you did this and you did, I'm like, I don't know that language, but cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you guys like that, you know? Yeah. But isn't it funny the way music is transmitted as children to us, you know, in different ways, because some people grow up in places where they're hearing music and internalizing it in the deepest way and having this incredible ability with it. And other people grew up like I grew up where you uh, went to a piano lesson and you learned a series of pieces that weren't really great pieces, but they taught you to go ba 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 whatever. And, um, you know, somehow some of us pop out the other end with a, with a real appreciation of what music is. But it, it's fascinating that there are so many different ways to get there. Yeah, it's a very non-European way. Of, it's an oral tradition. You know, it's the old world, which is really cool. It's totally. really cool. Yeah. Bringing the old world to this sort of European, you know, uh, construct. I think it's really cool, Nicole. You know what, you've just said it, and we've, I've been having a lot of discussions with colleagues about it and decolonizing the way we make music. Because um, yeah. I've felt really a fish out of water 
because I, again, as I said, I didn't have the vocabulary, the education, and I had some like really senior African djembe drummers or what have you. And they're like, you're doing it the African way. It starts with yeah. the voice, uh, yeah. even how we um, teach it, yeah. everything you do, it's very African. You just, you, you had it in your DNA, but you did not know that that's yeah. what and in the old In the old traditions, in the old way, it's the student, you know, the master, master mentor gives it to the student and the student becomes the master and they give it to the next generation and the next generation. So that's just the, yeah, it's very cool. I like that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that validation. It's wonderful. I had a conducting teacher once named Leon Kirchner, who was a, a terrific conductor, but didn't have a big international career. And he said one time his son was in high school and brought home another high school friend and the other high school friend sat down and just started playing songs. And Leon said, ah, that's good stuff. Do you write any of it down? And the kid said, no, I don't know how to write any of it down. And it turned out it was Paul Simon. And he'd, he'd never been taught in that European way at all. He just played by ear, you know, f followed his intuition and came up with great songs. But I don't think there's any uh, better or right path to uh, creating music. Yeah, just no, like, but know, there, there is like, a... Oh, sorry, Hector, go ahead. I, mean, I, was, I went to school from undergrad called CalArts, and we were learning gamelan music. And, and you know, what we were learning, we, didn't, we weren't given notes. We were learning patterns. And, we had to, and from a master teacher, and you had to learn the patterns. And it was all oral, you know, for one, yeah, so. It was all oral. I think there's an advantage to both, because having it written means that it lives longer uh, or stays. And that's what I realized. That's what the tool is. Because um, a lot of times, if, if it dies with a generation, then it's gone. Um, so I have an appreciation. But not if you make tape, not if you make recordings. Well, see, this is it. So this is our era now. <laughs> it's our era, yeah. Yes. So what do you all think about our era now? I mean, what, there are so many things that are open to us, both in terms of the social things that we can change and feelings that we can express and how we do it, not just how we notate it, but, but everything. Uh, are there things that um, you feel particularly fortunate to be able to do now that we couldn't have done even 50 years ago? I feel fortunate that I can do anything at all, which was not, which I didn't feel was true even maybe like 10 years ago, even though I had completed, you know, a lot of the requisite training that those of us who do this sort of stuff do. Um, I just, I feel like it's a bigger tent now and it needs to be a much bigger tent. Um, but that little by little, a lot of the, uh, old biases about how things are supposed to be done are going away there and we need to move much farther in that direction. Um, and I like too, that, I mean, I don't love the pandemic or you know any of the horrible things that have happened recently, but uh, that people are starting to think differently about how opera can be made and that grand opera is not the only valid kind of opera, that there's room for all kinds of different stories to be told in different ways. Yeah, that's so, so true and, and so wonderful. I wanna second everything that Rachel said. Um, what's different about our era or our time is I'm here. I'm allowed to tell the stories that I'm not blocked out because I believe that at the beginning, um, I guess why I reference musical theater a lot is that 
Well, Popper didn't welcome me. Um, it was a flat out no. Uh, it sounds too gospel. It's not European. Like it was a no. And so I went over to the musical theater side, basically petitioning um, development and saying, well, you know, Les Miserables and Evita are in theory operas. And they were like, you're right. Uh, it's not looked upon that way, but you're right. It's fully sung. So I said, can you welcome me in? Um, but now, about a decade later, opera is taking a look at me. So I'm grateful for that and uh, appreciating the, the different ways that I tell the stories. And as a woman, all of that, it's like we're in a, a really uh, interesting and, and, and hopefully uh, liberating time in, 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 in appreciating how different people tell different stories uh, and, and, and taking it and spinning it on its head, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's the, the technology that's been happening in the last 10, 20 years um, is making it easier for artists to create and then share content, um, whether it be live or, or virtual. So, you know, for example, you know, with my, my new project, Mi Camino, uh, which is about the story of farm workers and when the whole COVID-19 happened, um, you know, we were going to do, so I have, you know, as you know, Joe, I have an opera company and, and we were going to present present something and we were going to present uh, actually uh, Robert Rodriguez's Frida. Um, and well, anyway, okay, I'm, I'm going off tangent here, but um, I think it's now accessible. Uh, I sort of, the sort of the democrat, democratization um, of making uh, our work more accessible to a larger audience outside of a physical space. So with, for example, with Mi Camino, I, the singers are gonna be in a virtual world and there'll be avatars and there'll be virtual space. And I just, I just uh, I'm excited about that, you know? So we have live theater plus this. So artists who have been somewhat marginalized can find ways of sharing that experience, have a singer in front of a green screen, and create a, you know, this, this, other, this other world, you know? And, and share it with the world. I think it's really exciting. So. I have a feeling that we are reaching the end of our time, but does anybody have anything that they want to just throw in that we didn't get to talk about? I have one thing because I had an epiphany this morning when I was thinking about this. Um, if you listen to a lot of chatter online among composers, uh, quite frequently they say that Composers of opera should not write their own libretto, and they get very upset about this. But nobody ever says librettists shouldn't write their own music, and I think that's a curious thing. And I think the bias comes from a misunderstanding that we assume as composer librettists who have these both of these skill sets that we can and should do everything all the time, that like we should tell all of those stories, and that we are equipped to do everything perfectly. And I can only speak for myself, but I know that that's not true of me. I know that there are like, I have my lane and sometimes I go out of my lane and sometimes that's great and sometimes it's a total disaster. And so I think it's just about coming from a place of curiosity and humility and, um, you know, and a very specific point of view. But that is, it's something that I do feel like I'm kind of pushing back against a lot. I don't know if you both have ever experienced that? I was at a I was at an Opera America conference, and it was my first time meeting uh, Mark Campbell. And um, 
introduced myself and we talked a little bit. And I think he asked me, well, who writes your libretto? And I said, well, I do, Mark. And he goes, oh. <laughs> I'm going to talk to him about that. He said something else. I don't remember <laughs> what he said. But, uh, you know, you know I, I, I'm a composer first who writes my libretto. But, you know, I, I don't see myself as, as an accomplished librettist like, you know, like Mark, some other great librettists. So I know my strength. So hmm. I, I find this question very curious. Uh, I coin myself as a storyteller and whatever medium it lends for me to do it in, I do. I think um, I'm now unapologetic. I, I don't say I'm a jack of all trades. I say I'm a master of many. And that a lot of the ancestors that I look, uh, they were multifaceted, like amazing performers, sung, danced, did all of it, played instruments. And I look at that, the time of the old, and I'm sort of trying to reclaim that and say that I am extremely well-rounded and that it's not that I want to do it all. It's just that sometimes for me, the storytelling involves all of it. So sometimes it, it means I can't separate it, but it's not to deter because I love collaboration and I, and similar to you, Rachel, I'm like, with, with my own work, no, but I've, I've now had more experiences in being like, yes, I can lend my talent in these ways outside of, creation and, and, and the wonder, and that's what I love about collaboration because I call them gods and goddesses. So even in production, I'm like, you're the goddess of light, you're the goddess of set, you're the goddess of, or God. <laughs> I, love down. I love that. Yeah, because I'm like, there are things I can't bring to it, but I don't, if, if a vision comes to me and a story is in me, uh, I, I just realize I, I have to sit, tell it and then allow others to come in. So it does depend on the project, but where I bonafidely say like Obia Opera, where it came to me and it had to be birthed through me as the vessel, I, I, I'm the storyteller and I, I have to guide the, the entire universe of that story. I just wanna say, I'm so grateful to all of you because the stories that you've all told have all touched me and I know they'll touch thousands and thousands of other people who have a chance to hear and see them. So just keep doing what you're doing wherever it takes you. And uh, I pray that soon we'll have the ability to see all of your works in live theaters full of people again. This is a, a temporary impediment that, uh, you know, affects us all, but hopefully is passing sooner rather than later. And just what all of you bring is so, so great to the world. It, it's truly world changing in the best way. Thank you for the, thank you for asking me to join. I enjoyed the conversation very much and, and I'm meeting Rachel, uh, Rachel and Nicole, it's a pleasure. Be fun, thanks everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Fort Worth Opera Salon. If you like what you heard and you want more, please consider making a donation to support Fort Worth Opera and all the work we do to bring opera to North Texas and directly to you through our new digital initiatives like this podcast. 
Text FWO2021 to 44321 or visit our website, www.fwopera.org, to make a donation. If you'd like to send us a message with topics you'd like to hear more about or questions for our guests, please email salon at fwopera.org and be sure to follow us on social media at Fort Worth Opera to find out about the next episode of Fort Worth Opera Salon. See y'all later.